0: This Government Matters podcast is sponsored by Hughes Network Systems, delivering innovation for civilian and military connectivity. It is time to expect more from your network. From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters Defense with Francis Rose.
1: Thanks for watching. Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. Every Wednesday, we focus on defense. Francis is out tonight. I'm your host, Marjorie Sunser. The Navy's acting leader says old software systems are causing delays and maintenance issues at shipyards. Acting Navy Secretary Thomas Harker tells the House Appropriations Defense Subcommittee his service is looking for ways to modernize outdated IT systems. FCW Report Harker tells the committee the Navy will be down to three financial systems from 10 by the end of September. Two bug bounty programs are expanding at the Defense Department. The Pentagon says its vulnerability disclosure program will include, quote, all publicly accessible DOD information systems. FedScoop reports the Air Force will bring back its Hackasat program to let ethical hackers try to break into a satellite. Two Republican members of Congress say the Justice Department and Pentagon should restart an investigation into conflicts of interest at the heart of the JEDI cloud contract controversy. Senator Mike Lee and Representative Ken Buck ask Attorney General Merrick Garland and Acting Defense Department Inspector General Sean O'Donnell for documents and information about former Defense Department officials with connections to Amazon Web Services. GCN reports Lee and Buck ask Garland to look at anti-competitive behavior by AWS, too. Frank Kendall is the new nominee for Secretary of the Air Force. He served as Pentagon Acquisition Chief during the Obama administration. Deborah Lee James was the 23rd Secretary of the Air Force. She's the author of Aim High, Chart Your Course, and Find Success. Thanks for joining me. What are your thoughts on Frank Kendall's nomination as Secretary of the Air Force?
2: Well, I think he's extremely well-qualified, Marjorie. I think he'll serve the Air Force very, very well. He's a seasoned defense uh, professional. Uh, He's been in the Pentagon before, so he knows the ropes of the bureaucracy. He knows the hill and how to sell a program, how to defend a program, and he knows the business of defense because he has some experience in industry as well. Now, of course, acquisitions and technology is his specialty, uh, but there's much more to the job than that. It's much broader, but the bottom line is I think he'll be great.
1: You obviously know the job well. uh, I'm sure you know Frank. What do you think will be the top priorities, assuming he's confirmed?
2: Well, I think there's several things. First of all, he has to establish his personal priorities. And they have to be, of course, in sync with those of the Secretary of Defense and the National Defense Strategy. But he has to figure out what he is going to promote as the Secretary of the Air Force. So again, acquisition and technology will be one thing, but it certainly cannot be the only thing. The second thing is he's got to throw himself directly into the budget and congressional hearings. Keeping in mind, he won't have had any input to this budget submission. But he will be charged with learning it, defending it, and selling the programs on Capitol Hill. And I do expect there'll be some some important fights that he'll have to work on. The third thing is he'll have to build and deepen his relationships in the Pentagon with people like the Secretary of Defense, the chiefs of the Air Force and the Space Force, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs and some OSD leaders, because these relationships will be key for his advocacy of Air Force programs um, and budgets and policies. And then lastly, he needs to hit the road. He needs to make connections with where the rubber meets the road, the real airmen, the real guardians on the ground, and let them know that he's advocating for them, hear their concerns, um, and get to know our real air and and space force.
1: You rightly point out that, of course, acquisition and technology is is not the only um, part of this job. What do you think are the other areas that are really important here?
2: Well, everybody has to remember, by statute, the Secretary of the Air Force is charged with organizing, training, and equipping the force and of course everybody knows the equipping part is the acquisition and it's the technology the organize uh, refers to the very important people programs and of course the train relates to the very important readiness programs. so I certainly hope that he will devote a lot of attention to both of those areas to people when it comes to pay and benefits when it comes to family housing diversity and inclusion and then these key challenges like suicide prevention and sexual assault prevention and um, uh, racial equity in the force, things of this nature are very important, too. And when it comes to readiness, I think he needs to work with the chiefs to try to come up with a new framework for measuring readiness, because I fear the way we do our metrics today, we will be in a state of perpetual unreadiness. So there's got to be a better way to answer the question, ready for what, and then how to measure it.
1: Going back to acquisition for a minute, obviously, um, the F-35 program is one that he, he has to know from his previous job. Um, how do you think that will affect you know the way he thinks about this program, assuming he becomes Secretary of the Air Force?
2: Right. Well, acquisition, of course, is his sweet spot, and this is a strength that he will bring to the table. There's been changes in all of these programs in the last four years, and being able to keep up via the headlines, as we all try to do, is not the same as being deep into the details. So his first challenge will be to dig deep into the details to see what has changed, and then to do his best to try to help bring down costs, to help get things more on schedule, to make sure the capability is delivered. So F-35 is one area, there's KC-46, we're gonna have a major debate, I think, on the ground-based tr- strategic deterrent, whether we should extend the life of the existing system or whether we should build a new system. So that debate will be d- discussed. And you know, if I had him here with me today, I would say, keep your eye on the software issues because so many programs seem to run into trouble over uh, over software.
1: And when you think about this people piece, some of the issues that, that you mentioned, how um, might the pandemic uh, influence his thinking about that and maybe the steps that that he needs to take as air force secretary
2: well i think he has to be very attuned to the people issues and again he's not known for this but a lot of people don't realize he has been a a, a human rights lawyer he's been involved with human rights for years so he really does have an affinity for the people issues although that hasn't been that hasn't been his expertise uh professionally. So the pandemic is has in some ways changed or, or could change for the future the way we perpetually train. It can change the way our civilian workforce, many of our civilians work, meaning a hybrid model of working from home as well as working in an office environment. So there's just lots of ways that both corporate America and government can look to the future of work based on the lessons learned, learned of the pandemic. So he's going to have to find a way to put all that together and also work across the Department of Defense to make sure that there is some synchronization between what Air Force, Navy and Army and OSD ultimately decide to do.
1: But it sounds like you do think that this is a a sort of a a moment for the future of work and that the Air Force may want to make some changes, um, you know, related to this.
2: I think so. I think based on everything that um, I have been able to glean there has been not a loss of productivity there's been an increase or or certainly hold the line on productivity for many many types of work for the air force now again there's always there's always exceptions certain classified programs whatnot you have to be in the skiff you have to be on scene but there's a lot of ways that we can learn uh from this pandemic and bounce forward in a positive way which will give people more flexibility And after all, flexibility is is a lot of what people want today, as much flexibility as we can give them. Thanks so much, Debbie. Thank you.
1: Up next, sustaining one of the most expensive weapon weapon systems in the military. Straight ahead on Government Matters, the money it would take to keep F-35s flying. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News.
3: The most expensive weapons system in history is about to get more expensive. A new analysis from the Government Accountability Office suggests the F-35 aircraft could wind up costing more to operate than the services say they can afford. Diana Maurer is Director of Defense Capabilities and Management Issues GAO. Diana, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. I calculate that we're only about 16 percent into this program as far as the number of planes that are actually existing. What do we know about the cost growth of this program and where that growth is coming from, Diana? Well...
4: Thanks Francis, it's great to be on the show again. And so what we know is that from day one, we've known that this is going to be an expensive aircraft and that's in part because it has such amazing capabilities. It's so sophisticated and it's so complex. Our concern from the GAO is that the sustainment cost growth has been moving in the wrong direction. Sustainment costs have been increasing over time rather than decreasing, which is what you would hope for and what you would expect. And what that means is we now have a situation where the, the three services who planned, who are purchasing and using the aircraft, the Air Force, the Navy and the Marine Corps, are in a situation where they cannot afford to fly the number of planes that they plan to buy.
3: This is maybe the most striking passage from your work, uh, in my view, Diana, in my opinion. The services will collectively be confronted with tens of billions of dollars in sustainment costs that they project as unaffordable during the program. The services are essentially saying, we can't buy this plane according to our own measures. What are the measures that they're using to come to that conclusion, Diana?
4: So each of the services back in 2018 developed what they called affordability constraints, which is they looked at all of their budgets, they looked at what they plan to spend on the F-35, as well as all their other competing priorities and determined this is how much we can afford to spend for every F-35 per year. And those are their affordability targets. What we did is we took those those targets and compared them to what the projected costs will be to fly and operate the F-35. And what we found was that there are significant affordability gaps. In the case of the Air Force, the projected costs are 47% higher than what the Air Force says it can afford.
3: So to that point, you write this. The Air Force needs to reduce estimated costs, as you just said, per tail, per year, by $3.7 million by 2036. That's per year. um, Or it will incur $4.4 billion in costs beyond what it currently projects it could afford in that year alone. Is there any precedent that we've seen in uh an organization in the department able to do that with sustainment costs or is is that projection requiring the force to do something that's never been done before
4: uh you know we, we looked into that at least for aviation systems that there really aren't any precedents for that you know by the time an aircraft has been developed and, and built and in the case of the f-35 you know we're talking you know 400 and plus that are already in service in the u.s military the, the sustainment costs are largely but not entirely baked into the system. So it's 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 going to be very, very difficult to close that 47% gap. I mean, to use one example, um, if for some reason the contractors decided out of the goodness of their heart to provide free spare parts for the life of the program, it would still not close that affordability gap for the Air Force. And And, and they're not going to do that, nor should they.
3: Uh, Recommendations here include uh, the following. The first, requiring uh, DOD to report annually to Congress on progress in achieving the affordability constraints. And secondly, making procurement decisions on the plane contingent on DOD's progress in achieving these constraints. It sounds like you're saying Congress might consider not buying more of these if the price can't come down. Am I reading too much into what you're writing there, Diana?
4: That is certainly one of the um, possible policy options that we've teed up for Congress, right? I mean, we're talking about affordability, and there are two parts of that. That's uh, how much something costs and how much you're willing to pay, right? So for the F-35, one of the options to explore is reducing the cost, so pursue cost savings. Another option is to decide to spend more, right? Um, Congress could well decide that it's in the national security interest of the country to spend that additional money to sustain the aircraft. Sort of a, another option is for the department to look at the number of aircraft they plan to purchase, how frequently they plan to fly the aircraft, what levels of readiness they want to attain through the sustainment approach. All three of those pieces will go into developing an affordability strategy that we hope uh, the Pentagon uh discusses and adopts and implements very very soon
3: one of the recommendations along that line that you make to the pentagon here is to develop a plan to ensure it can afford to sustain the future f-35 fleet it just sounds like the numbers are so daunting that that you lay out in this work diana that that's going to require a, a tremendous amount of cooperation on congress's part to just give the department more money to feed this program am i reading something wrong
4: well, I think there, there's going to be very likely some combination of all three of those things. Some combination of squeezing cost savings out of the current program, the way it's structured. Some look at requirements, whether it's buying fewer or taking a hard look at, at flight hours, and then some combination of potentially paying more for sustainment. That's a Those are policy options. At GAO, we don't take a position on what the specific path forward is. But we do think it's vitally important that the Pentagon develop an approach and then Congress make its own decisions on the level of funding for the F-35 program. This is the this is the present and the future of combat aviation for this country. And so addressing this affordability issue is vitally important.
3: Diana Maurer, thanks very much as always. Great to have you back on the program.
4: Thank you very much.
1: Up next, expecting the unexpected when it comes to threats facing the intelligence community. Straight ahead on Government Matters, how the Director of National Intelligence can better prepare for the next major disruption. Don't forget, if you missed an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv. latest assessment from the Director of National Intelligence anticipates the threat of disruptive technologies. It also finds that the COVID-19 pandemic will generate aftershocks for years. Barry Pavel is Senior Vice President and Founding Director of the Scowcroft Center for Strategy and Security at the Atlantic Council. Thanks for joining me. What struck you about this uh, year's threat assessment?
5: Thank you for having me on here. Um, what struck me was it was very good. It was very solid. Um, It was very focused on the key near-term threats in a very prioritized and comprehensive fashion. It kind of flowed starting from China through the other nation state um, challengers, Russia, Iran, North Korea, uh, then talked about some of the transnational threats, terrorism, COVID, climate change, and then regional instability. So in some ways it was sort of a, a primer on, okay, here's the exact threats that we're aware of, and it very much paralleled the president's initial um, interim national security strategic guidance. Um, But I worried when I saw it that it was excellent as a 101, but unfortunately the the world's more in uh, 201, 301. And so how do we do a better job of thinking about the unexpected uh, or the complex in the near term There's a parallel document, the Global Trends 2040 document that was also released that was very good on long-term trends out to 2040. What are the big issues? It painted a very dark uh, picture of of things continuing to get worse, which I'm not averse to. Um, But what I would have liked was a little bit of that in the first thing, because the world's spinning very fast.
1: Absolutely. even,
5: Even this year, we should expect something
1: unexpected that seems like part of the challenge here right they're trying to give you the landscape of of potential threats but of course there are um they mentioned disruptive technologies that maybe uh they can't quite predict what those look like or you have things like this pandemic that I, i think probably count as some sort of surprise how can a document like this capture you know things that um might sort of lay ahead that that are a little bit hard to pinpoint
4: it's a great
5: question and especially for those of us who know the process this is a coordinated you know consensus intelligence community document, the first one, the annual. And so, um, you know, maybe there's a section that is, you know, uh, labeled as more speculative, um, you know, things we should think about. Uh, and so I think, you know, ha, you, know, you know, putting it that way, you know, tr- using that to avoid strategic blind spots, uh, using foresight um, so that, so that policymakers can expand their imagination and say, okay, that is, you know, even though that's not likely, that is possible. And we should think about how we do a better job of potentially preventing or mitigating if it happens.
1: I think that's an interesting idea of this as sort of a 101 document. How can it be sort of used as a tool, maybe, to enable, um, you know, more sophisticated uh, conversations about it?
5: Um, I think again, it's a great sort of set menu. If it's you know, I'll, I'll use an analogy. If you're going to a to a steak restaurant, I mean, it's served up steak. But you know, you might have a special on the menu that uh, people might try. And here I'm talking about policymakers to say, I do want to dig a little deeper into that speculative thing. What if China's digital currency kind of comes back to bite us, even starting later this year? What if an ally we were banking on? to to stay with us on a particular issue decides, no, we're gonna hedge now that there's a a little bit of relative um, decline between the U.S. and China in terms of overall power as China continues to rise, you know, we're gonna see some of this. You know, we saw, for example, the UAE buy a lot of Chinese vaccines, even though they're, um, they're less effective than the U.S. vaccines. That's just one example. You know, what if Russia and China get much closer even than they already are. So these what-ifs, I think, are really important for policymakers. You don't necessarily have to, you know, develop a very big structured policy for all of the what-ifs, um, and then, you know, allocate your resources, your di- diplomatic, your economic, your defense resources accordingly, but it's, you know, you want to put some of these things on people's minds so that when they see something happen in the world, that might trigger a thought that says, wow, you know, that might lead to one of these what-ifs.
1: Are, are you seeing that? Are you expecting to see uh, Congress use this as, as perhaps a jumping off point for some um, more detailed discussions?
5: Well, certainly everything in the annual threat assessment, uh, because it just covered everything that was, that's currently on the horizon. You know, it's almost every you know major keyword is coming up in all of the testimony, China, Russia, North Korea, COVID, climate change. I mean, that's all coming up. So it is used, you know, again sort of as the base the baseline this is what we have in front of us but what i was suggesting was there are more nuanced discussions to have what if some of these things combine even in ways that we didn't uh, expect and so uh that certainly should come out in testimony it certainly should come out in additional uh statements from the administration and in um you know readouts of u.s consultations with its allies and partners so the, the answer is yes it's a good baseline i'm not at all criticizing the annual threat assessment for being incomplete it's not for, for not for not being well structured it is very well structured i'm just saying we might need a little more because this is just a different era in history than even 10 years ago even 20 years ago we can all feel it there's a lot of uncertainty there's a lot of dynamism China's moving very, very quickly. I think we underestimate the importance of speed in policymaking as one major point, I would stress. Um, and so we really need to you know, keep this kind of process and content very agile.
1: Thanks so much for joining me.
5: You're welcome.
3: My pleasure.
1: Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, it's on our website, govmatters.tv. For a preview of each newscast, sign up for our daily program guide right now by texting GOVMATTERS to the number 58671. I'm back in two minutes. That's the latest from Washington. Join us weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on 7 News to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Marjorie Sensor.
0: Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrice Haddon. Our director of content is Alan Holmes. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.
6: GSA's got a good plan for that they've got a plan for the on-ramping of of services uh frankly the 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 current SD-WAN movement is an example of that SD-WAN did not exist when EIS was awarded but GSA's been working hard with the agencies and with the primes to add these services so what's important is that the agencies demand that the um that, that the primes offer various kinds of SD-WAN solutions. There are a number of them out there they need to not just offer their direct example examples of uh, proprietary services but there are multiple platforms agencies should really meet with the primes and say here's what i want here's what i want here's where
3: i want to go over the next 10 to 15 years time is of the essence it strikes me tony because there's a countdown clock going here for agencies to get these contracts awarded um if you're just starting this process at the beginning first of all shame on you i guess but um secondly what's the role of the vendor to help uh uh, an agency move the ball
6: well i think i think the idea here is to if you haven't gotten started yet make sure you're asking the right questions of industry that you're asking for the right kind of services if you're still stuck on an rfp or a format that asks for older technology there are and and there are unfortunately francis a number of rfps and fair opportunities out there that have asked for the old stuff and it's it's like the the to, to some extent i'm 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 advocating for timeline be damned you ought to stop stop the presses